Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Living with Power Hope podcast. Lena Abu-Jamra here, and I am so glad you're back. Listen, if it's your first time here, welcome. If you've been here before, then you know that every week we get to spend time talking about uh, faith, life, culture, and all sorts of things. We are now in a series in the book of Hebrews, and I have heard some great things from you about it. It's called the Confidence Series, and I hope it's encouraging you. Hey, I've got some great news. My new book is out. Don't tell anyone you're reading this. Uh, A Christian Doctor's Thoughts on Sex, Shame, and Other Troublesome Issues. That's a whole lot of title, but it's really a great book about forgiveness and love and intimacy and sex. And so if you want to find out more about me, get the book. It's on Amazon, or you can find out about it at drlinabook.com. Honestly, everybody who's reading it is connecting with it. It's been really um, exceeding my expectations in in terms of its reaction from readers. And so um, this is a book that I was nervous to put out, but honestly, you guys have been so gracious and encouraging. And if you haven't read it, uh, do so, get it. I think you will not regret it. (laughs) That rhymed, all right. Uh, So uh, without further ado, let's hit the Hebrews study for today. And uh, uh, this is a 10-week study. We're now uh, well on our way here. I hope you can sit back and enjoy it. Or if you're out and about, uh, just listen up, pay attention, and let's pray that God moves in our hearts as we dig into his word and the spirit of God moves in us. Thanks again for checking in. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. All right, guys, we are studying a, a, a series called The Confidence Series. It's a study of the book of Hebrews. And I've subtitled it, How to Fully Trust God When I Don't See the Way. And we've sort of going through the book, really verse by verse, chapter by chapter, but we're, we're focusing on this concept that because of who God is, we can trust him. The whole point of the book of Hebrews, remember, has been, in case you're just picking up today for the first time, you can watch all of the teachings and, and down the road, we're hoping to run this on podcast. So if you're listening to the podcast, you can listen to the first few teachings. But the point of it is to show that Jesus is better. And just in point, a couple of minutes, just in point of summary, as some of you are still coming on, welcome, by the way, if you're just coming on now. But in point of summary, uh, this book is meant to show that Jesus is better. It was written to a Jewish audience, uh, most of whom were Christians, but some of whom were not committed to Jesus yet. They were investigating what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Others were so, sort of one foot in the door and one foot out. They were sort of intellectually you know, convinced, but they weren't all in. We're going to be looking at that group of people here today. We're going to look at some of the writings of Hebrews 6 as it pertains to that group of people. But, uh, but the whole point of it, the writer was trying to encourage these early Christians that were living right before the destruction of the temple. You remember in AD 70, Nero would bur- you know, persecute Christians and eventually burn, you know, destroy the temple, which was predicted by Jesus uh, during his life and right before he went to the cross. And so now it's about to happen. It hasn't happened, but there's a lot of persecution happening to everybody who had given their life to Jesus. And so these Jewish believers living potentially uh, in Greece were sort of wrestling with what it means to live in a culture that does not care for them, that does not like them. And they were, they were sort of pushed in two directions. On one hand, they wanted to go back to their Jewish traditions and ways. On the other hand, they had seen and tasted of the goodness of God. And so, so the book is written to encourage them to be strong in the faith, to be unshaken, to continue to lean into who Christ is and what he's promised them. And then, of course, it was also a, a, an effort to teach those who were still sort of on the line, not sure if they should jump into this walk with Jesus, to push them into that and then to educate, to teach, to inspire those who did not believe at 
at all. And so I don't know where you fall in that category. Maybe you're a committed follower of Jesus. You need to be encouraged to persevere in the faith. Or maybe you are sort of one foot in the door and one foot out and you need to be pushed into faith. Or maybe you have not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus and, and you're exploring it. Listen, we love that you're all here and we really believe that the Holy Spirit will use his word to draw you to him. And so every week we've looked at a different aspect of how Jesus is better. And, and, and we looked in chapter one of how he's better than the angels and then later how he's better than Moses and be, better than the high priest and Aaron. And, and, and we're going to be looking later in how he's better than the Levitical um, laws that the Jewish people were so attached to. And today we're going to look at this angle because he does not lie. We're going to see in Hebrews chapter six, this, this emphasis on a God who does not lie. And that same God who spoke in the Old Testament is the is the one who's revealed in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, most of the Jewish people missed it. They spent the entire Old Testament, thousands of years, expecting the coming of Christ, but when he came, they couldn't see him. And so uh, we're going to look at that starting in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. We left off last week there, and we're going to look at, I'm confident because he does not lie. I'm going to read some of the passage, make some commentary, and then give you sort of four aspects of uh, what God does not lie about. And, and because he does not lie, how that affects us and how the implications of what that means. Now, early on, I had told you how there's like warnings in the book of Hebrews. And, and one of the warnings early on in chapter uh, two was the warning um, to uh, not drift away. And then we covered another warning in chapter three of unbelief. You know, we talked about getting into the rest of Christ, how we can have peace and rest in Christ. That was our right, our gift. And, and what keeps us from that rest is unbelief. Uh, today, we're going to look at a third danger, and it is the danger of spiritual immaturity. But specifically, not talking about spiritual immaturity as in, I'm a young Christian, I need to grow up in the faith, but really we're going to look at this angle of spiritual immaturity that contrasts a person, the Jewish people at the time who this was written to, who were holding on to the Old Testament traditions. They were immature. They were babies. They were still hanging on to that Old Testament way when the New Testament had revealed Christ and all that they had believed in was revealed. They needed to come to maturity in Christ. And we're going to put that hand on as we read chapter 5, verse 11. Let me read you a few verses, if you don't mind, as we delve into today's study. And so it says about this, what, what this? Well, we had just finished speaking about how Jesus is like Melchizedek. We had talked about how Jesus is like Melchizedek, and we're going to re-hit that, by the way, in chapter 7 next week. We're going to deeper go into that. But there's a little bit of a sort of interjection here where, where the writer, we don't know who the writer is, but, but he, he now stops this discussion about Melchizedek and says, about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, this is the rebuke, the the dangers that they would become sluggish, sluggish, lazy, dull of hearing. I wonder how many of us can think of, think about this culture we're living in. It seems like everyone is dull of hearing in the church. People are dull of hearing. I wonder if we, you and I, as we consider our own lives, just examine a bit, are we dull of hearing or do we hear what God is saying? Are we able to eat the food that God wants to give us, or are we dull of hearing? And so he, he now accuses some of the species. It is hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. 
For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, this is contrasting, again, the Jewish people who are hanging on to the Old Testament ways, and they had not come. In fact, let's read chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Maturity was what? Now, in Christ. Old Testament was immaturity, the Old Covenant, the way that the Jewish people believed. But now, in Christ, we have a new way. We need. So he's urging them to mature in their knowledge of, of, of what it means to have faith in God. And so he says, it's time to let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. Now he lists in these next few verses some of those elements that Old Testament Jewish people believed. Repentance from dead works, they did believe in repentance in the Old Testament. What they did not have yet is repentance in Christ. They believed in repenting to God, you know, sort of in a general sense. And she's like, you got to leave that way of just, just repentance. There's a lot of people who have other faiths now that talk about repentance and change, but, they, but, but that word might be used differently. What Christians, our strength is not that we repent. To repent, to change, means nothing. It's to repent in Put your faith in Christ. That's the difference. It's to say, I'm not doing it the right way, but it's in Christ. It's to line yourself up in Christ. I'm going to come back and talk about repentance in a minute. And so that was one of the elements. And of instruction about washings. And here, just talking about washings is the Old Testament rituals of cleansing, which was now it had to come to maturity, which was now you can be washed by the Holy Spirit, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit that's referred to in Titus and other places. The laying on of the hands now he's comparing, again, the Old Testament. They used to lay hands on the sacrifices. And now he's saying, you know, now the, now in the New Testament, there's a laying of hands of, 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 in the fellowship of the faith and, 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 and the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. Again, principles that were discussed in the Old Testament, but were coming to maturity in the New Testament in Christ Jesus. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucified once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. I'm going to stop for a minute. Let me reassure you about one thing. Hands down, every commentary you will read about these verses will tell you, hands down, this is an incredibly difficult interpretation here. You will see many different opinions. I, I, I like Warren Beersby's commentary in Hebrews, and he says, the problem with many of us is that we approach God's word with what we've already decided it should mean. And so a lot of times people will do that. They come to the word of God with what they've been taught, with what they've heard. And so it's important to sort of recognize, first of all, this is a hard pass of scripture. And so we're trying to get through this chapter in 30 minutes. I'm gonna do the best I can in that, but realize that there are multiple different interpretations. I think the best interpretation and the most solid one uh, paints this. So, so one of the questions, let me give you some of the interpretations that don't hold as much water, which because you read at face value and you might say, well, is this, is this passage saying that you can lose your salvation? Is that what it's talking about? And, and, and the answer across the board uh, by people who hold to a, an orthodox and, and biblical view of scripture is that no, that doesn't teach that you can lose your salvation. Why? Because you've got to look at scripture in context and you've got to see what else is taught on this. And across the board in the New Testament is the consistent teaching that you cannot lose your salvation. Jesus himself said in John chapter six that 
that, uh, and, and later on in John chapter 10, that no one can snatch you from your father's hand. Even later in Hebrews, we'll see how Christ died once and for all for the sins of mankind. You cannot lose your salvation. Now, I know that there's some disagreement. There's some versions of, of uh, denominations that would say that, that you can, but that is, I don't believe that's biblical. We, we are saved not by our works, but by God's grace. We're saved not by works in Ephesians 2, but by his grace. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Uh, over again, we're told that, that our salvation doesn't rest in how good we are, but how good God is. He gives us his righteousness, even while we were sinners. And so you don't earn your salvation. Works don't save you. Uh, even the book of James that sort of contrasts, we just finished teaching the book of James here, that contrasts works and faith. Works don't save you, works reveal what you believe. And so this is clearly then you have to come to the conclusion that this can't be saying that. Now, early on I had made the point in lesson one of Hebrews to talk about how this book, and, and in fact, what, I, I still find the MacArthur commentary one of the strongest commentaries on these topics. And, and, and so he makes a point in his commentary and in his um, uh, multiple resources that he's put out. We, he talks about, and by the way, he's not the only one that, that looks at this perspective, but uh, I think he's one of the easiest to understand. He has a way of explaining scripture in a very clear fashion. And he talks about early on in the book of Hebrews, how this book is written, remember, to three groups of Christians, those who are all in, those who are sort of, observing, you know, convinced intellectually, but still sort of one foot in the door, one foot out, and those who did not have a clear understanding or, or were not bought buying in yet. And so this uh, passage of, of caution in chapter six, verses one through whatever I read, six or seven, is really written to that second group where they're tasting, they're seeing, they sort of are are, are, are hearing, but they haven't vested in. And so it's a warning to those people to grow up, to leave the Old Testament ways, the elementary ways, and to jump in. And, and that the pride, I mean, there's a consequence to those who, by the way, you might say, how, how does that relate to us now? I believe with all my heart that today in the evangelical born again church, the Bible teaching church, if you go to church, and I know we're not as church going post COVID as we used to be, but even in this era, across the board in church are people who are all in and others who are semi in and others who are just there trying to figure out what it's all about. You have to figure out which of those groups are you in. If you're all in, what you might need is just encouragement. And we're gonna get to that in a moment as we get to the second half of chapter six. But maybe you're in the middle group, which is like, yeah, I'm buying into it, but I'm not I'm gonna overcommit. Uh, this warning may be for you, and you might not be holding on to Old Testament beliefs, but you might be holding on to, to whatever it is from your past tradition that may not be in alignment to the ways of Christ. And, and the warning in chapter six to the first few verses is, is not that you can't find a place of safety in Christ or a place of repentance. On the contrary, it's an urging to come, to, 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 to turn your life back to him. And, and a couple of other ways that you can interpret the scripture. I'm not going to spend too much on it because I really want to kind of step back from um, sort of some of this, you know, I, I want us to cover some of the challenges in these passages, but I sort of want to take a step back and get to this idea of God who does not lie. And so, I, uh, by the way, I, I'm going to start the outline, but I just want to, um, where I, I kind of settled and this concept of God's character for chapters five through six is towards the end of chapter seven, I'm sorry, at the end of chapter six, I wanna sort of jump ahead 
um, just to read you some, a couple of verses, um, we'll come back and read the context, but where he were told in chapter 6, verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. That's where I'm getting that concept in this section on the character of God that does not lie. And building into that, as we're, now we're going to go back to where we were in, the, in chapter 5, verse 11, 6, but just sort of this concept, the skeleton idea. Every week we're looking at a character of God. He's faithful. He loves us. Now he does not lie. So it's coming out of chapter 6. Now I want to step back and sort of give you a big, you know, sort of image, like a drone looking down uh, on it. And so I'm confident because he does not lie. And so here's, here's the first idea. And, and again, I'm going to backtrack now that we've gotten ourselves... It's almost like swimming, like you've put your foot in the pool and you've gotten yourself wet. Now we can dive in a little. Number one, God does not lie about his word. Its effect is life changing. All right. I want to kind of reel back to chapter five, verse 11. And in, in those first few verses that I read, we're told about, um, about for though by this time you ought to be teachers, teachers of what? Teachers of the truth, teachers of God's word, teachers of what God has told us would happen. Many times in scripture, we see how Jesus himself used the prophets and the Old Testament to, to point to who he is. He did it all the time in his ministry. He would go to the, to the synagogue and read from the Old Testament to declare who he was. Even through the resurrection, when he shows up to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he walks by them and they're not sure what's happened. They don't believe that Jesus is resurrected. They're not sure what's going on. And he opens the, the Old Testament, the prophets, and explains who he was. So the word of God is central to this book of Hebrews. In fact, in chapter four, last week, remember guys, we talked about verses 12 of chapter four, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now here in chapter five, again, we're told that we need to eat, not we need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness as he's a child, but solid food is for the mature. What's he talking about? He's talking about the word of God. And, and, and verse 14, but solid food is for the mature who, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. God does not lie about his word. Its effect is life-changing. And that message is reamed in the book of Hebrews. We started with a discussion on the word of God in chapter one. Jesus is the word. And then now, then we moved into chapter four where we're told the word of God is given to us. It's quick and powerful. And throughout the book of Hebrews is a reference to the Old Testament, to the word of God. And, and of course, the living word is Christ, but also the written word that we have. That's why we take an effort to study the word of God. It is, God does not lie about his word. God's word will grow you when you practice it. I love verse 14. You want to know how to mature in Christ? You want to know how to, to, to you know, you wonder ever in a culture that's becoming more and more immoral and more and more godless. My mom is constantly reminding us of something that we don't need reminding of. She constantly, I was with her last week, so it's fresh on my mind. And she's constantly the problem in our in our country. You know, we want to think it's it's a politician, or it's the economy, or it's the inflation, or it's immorality. But at the end of the day, it is a people who have deviated from God. We have thrown God out. We don't want God. We don't want His Word, and and we don't want the Word of God. And it started years ago when we threw out the Ten Commandments, and there were arguments in this country about getting rid of the Ten Commandments. At the end of the day, is the neglect and a dis 
disinterest and a hatred for the word of God. And yet how here now in 2022 in our culture can we continue to discern between right and wrong? Well, chapter 5 verse 14 tells us, doesn't it? It says, uh, the solid food is for the mature who, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You want to know how to, how to know what's true in a culture that's confused? Well, you root yourself in the word of God. It is, it is powerful. It is life-changing. You want to grow up? You want to go from immature to mature? You root yourself in the word of God. God's word will grow you when you practice it. It will change you when you yield to it. It's not enough to just read it intellectually. You need to yield to it. How do you yield to it? You agree with it. You submit to it. You, you, you lower yourself. It takes, it takes humility, not pride, to say, okay, God, I, I agree with you, even though it goes against everything that the culture is teaching. And everything we believe right now goes in the word of God goes against what the culture is teaching. So if you believe the Bible, you are in a minority. You might be mocked, you might be ridiculed, but it's, it's his word. And it is life-changing, and God does not lie about it. God's word will not touch you if you neglect it. You want a warning about the danger of spiritual immaturity? Neglect the word of God and you are certain to fall into a state of immaturity and eventually a state of falling away. And so God's, God doesn't lie about his word. So an application question here is simple. Like how, how do you treat his word? I, I say this so much, but I really believe it's, it's an essential question. You, I don't think you can be a growing Christian if you don't spend time in the word of God. It's inevitable that if it, it, the two things go hand in hand. You want to grow in, in Christ, you have to make time for the Word. And I'm always encouraged, you know, you guys are here listening to the Word. Like, I get you're interested in it. But besides doing an hour a week, actually 20 minutes a week, whatever it is that we're doing here, are you, what, what is your relationship with the Word of God? Do you honor it? Do you love it? Do you, do you, do you see that it is the breathed Word of God? Do you submit to it? And, and if you do, then its effect is life-changing. And the more time you spend on it, the more you will be able to distinguish between right and wrong. We have so many Christians now who say, well, I don't know if this is right. I mean, the culture says it's okay. That seems hateful that Christians believe certain things about certain things. And listen, it's not what we believe. It's what the word of God teaches. And so who do you submit to? That doesn't mean you take God's word and bang it on people's heads, but, but in your own life, you live in a way that you see God changing you. You're more spirit-filled. You see fruit in your life. You're growing because of the word of God. God's, God does not lie about his word. Its effect is life-changing. It will help you to grow up, to become spiritually mature, and to be able to discern right from wrong. Here's the second thing. And I started this discussion in chapter 6 about the context, but but also, so so when you think about chapter 6, verses 1 through through six, we're talking about how, you know, he's addressing these, these verses to those who sort of were sitting in church, so to speak. They were listening to the teachings. They were like, this is cool. We like it. Maybe even like back in the New Testament, uh, in the book of Acts, there's a man called, um, I think it's Simon, who had seen uh, Peter and, and the disciples doing these powerful miracles. And he was like drooling because he wanted a piece of that, right? So he was sort of in, sort of not, right? If you go back, I wrote about that in Fractured Faith, but I can't remember what chapter of Acts were told the story of of, of, uh, of Simon the sorcerer. And, and, and remember that he went to Peter and said, I want this power that you have. It's sort of that same concept of what's being described in chapter six. Those are people who show up. They sort of want it. They, they've tasted it enough to see there's something cool here. I want a piece of that. And remember, Peter said to him, you need to repent. You're lost. And, and this is a guy who a few verses earlier looked like he had given his life to Christ, but, but, but later it was evident from his heart that all he wanted was 
this this evident power without yielding to to God and wanted the appearance of godliness, the appearance of power, as opposed to you know I think a lot of us yearn for that by the way, and I think we need to sort of sort of think about that like. Are, are, are we hungry for what God can do for us? Are we willing to accept what God has done for us, right? Think about that. Many of us want God to break through with, with thunder and lightning and change everything in our life and show us that he's real and all of these things. And we're mad when he doesn't, when really the reality is he's already shown himself to us. And, 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 so, and so here's a second big idea about God and, and how he tells the truth. God does not lie about sin. Its consequences are extremely serious. God does not lie about sin. Its consequences are extremely serious. If you get anything, regardless of how you approach those verses, maybe you come from a church background that believes you can lose your salvation. I, I, I'm glad I didn't grow up in that church background because I really think that's so much stress and it's not true. Jesus died for our sins. He paid the price for our sins. He's assured us again and again that our salvation is eternal. But, but wherever you stand in that, if you can get one thing out of chapters Hebrews 6 verses 1 through 6, it is the idea that sin has its consequences. You say, what is sin? Because I know how our brains think. We think sin is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Like, that's how we think of sin. Oh my gosh, did you hear about him? He did that. And, and, and we have all of these actions. It's not that that's not sin, but, but it's, it's, it's more than that. I, I've been thinking about that. I think a definition of sin that I tried to sort of summarize in this way, and I might have read a version of it somewhere. I can't, I didn't pull that from anywhere, but, but I believe it's in my psyche from sin is living outside of the goodness of God. And by the way, if I remember that from reading it somewhere and I don't know who wrote it, then you can find a quote and put it. But, but at some point, I believe, of, at, I believe that captures what sin is. It is living outside of the goodness of God. I really think that's what sin is. It's not that you get drunk to oblivion or have, you know, unprotected sex with whoever you want. Those are sinful acts, but it's, it's a refusal to live within the goodness of God, right? When you do those things, you're saying, God, I don't want your way. You're rejecting the goodness of God, which embodies all the things that we think are right. The minute you submit all sin, all those things are a refusing to submit to the goodness of God. And, and what you can glean from chapter 6, 1 through Six, at the end of the day, is that sin has consequences. And the sin of rejecting the goodness of God, right? So sin is refusing to admit who God is. So if you admit who God is, then you submit to him. You can't. You cannot recognize who God is, who Jesus is. You cannot recognize that. And if you don't live that under, if you go, oh, yeah, I think Jesus is God and he's given anything, you, you either accept it or reject it. And if you're rejecting it, there's a consequence to that. And there's serious consequences. And, and you see that in those verses. If you've rejected, if you're coming to church and you're sort of like, oh, that's cool, everything's cool, but I'm not giving my life to him. What chapter six, verses one through six is saying is there are consequences to that. And there may be a point where uh, it will be hard to restore you back. Judgment will be a lot harsher for people who have heard the truth and rejected it than for people who might never have understood it. So if you're sitting in church week after week, hearing the gospel message and right, that sounds fine, but I, you know, I'm just going to be casual about it. Listen, wake up. There are consequences. Sin is refusing to admit who God is. It is refusing to do what God wants. Sin is serious and will separate you from God. And sin is refusing to embrace all God offers. What does he offer? Well, he offers us his son. He offers us his goodness. He offers us peace and rest. He offers us forgiveness. He offers us light. Sin is refusing that, saying, I'm going to do it my way. 
I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to enjoy some of the goodness of God. Maybe you want your prayers answered and you know, it's like God, a genie in a bottle and you want him to give you the power that, that you know, will make your life successful, but it's about you. He said, God offers you to die to self. Why? Not because he wants to see you suffer, but because the only way to joy is by saying, okay, my life is not my own. I'm crucified. And now Christ lives in me. That's a different type of commitment. That is an all in. I've no say I'm humble because he is God and I'm not. Remember, Hebrews is about the fact that Jesus is better. Better than what? Better than everything. Better than your way. Better than your plan. Better than the American dream. Better than a political manifesto. Better than a liberal agenda. Better than anything. It's not, there's no comparison in Christ. And do you believe that? Sin unrepented will always eventually reveal itself in your life. So when you consistently live outside of the goodness of God, again, I'm not caring about the list. I mean, we, we know the, old, the, the Ten Commandments. We can make a list of the sins, but, but it's living outside of the goodness of God, of saying, I've tasted it. I sort of agree with it, but I'm not going to submit to it. Well, there are consequences. And, uh, and may God protect us. May, may each one of us examine ourselves and say, man, have I, have I, am I in it because I, I, I'm in it? Or am I just wanting sort of to skim the surface, you know? And, and, and so, so that's, it's a word, word of warning, I think. And so God doesn't lie about his word. It's effect is life-changing. God does not lie about sin. It's, it's consequences are, are extremely serious. And then uh, the third big idea, and I'm going to read, a, oh, let me, before I give you the third idea, let me read you chapter, uh, chapter six, verse seven. What the writer does here, um, he sort of gives an illustration of what he's been trying to say in chapter six, verses one through six. So, the, so, the, so what he's saying is all these people are listening to the same truth, but it's revealed in a different way. And so this kind of reminds me like the wheat and the chaff when Jesus talks about uh, his kingdom and how in the end days, uh, you know, it, it'll be a distinction between the wheat and the chaff. This is what we see in chapter six, verse seven is the illustration of what he's been teaching. He says, for land that has drunk the rain, the rain is the word of God, for land, who's the land? Our hearts, us. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receive a blessing from God. So if you bear fruit, that's good. But if it bears thorns and thistles, this is like a wheat and a shaft, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Now he moves to encourage. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. He's talking now to those who believe. You know, he's encouraging them. We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. It's going to get very encouraging now, by the way. If it's been a little heavy here, it's going to get great, okay? So he says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Here's the big application point here. God does not lie about eternity. Its reality should change how you and I live. Okay, that's what I get from verses 9 through 12. There is eternity. It's, we don't make it up. It's not something to help us feel better. It's not like a human idea to help us you know, do good because someday there may be an end. No, it is as sure as the sun shone this morning. It is as sure as I am talking to you here today. 
and eternity's coming and how we live on this side impacts what happens to us tomorrow. And so, and so what he's saying here is like, if you have been working hard, and by the way, that verse 10 should be an encouragement to every Christian that feels like you're giving your all and you wonder, should, is, is it making a difference? Listen, God sees. I don't care if you're hidden in a Syrian refugee camp or if you're hidden, you know, you don't think your life counts. Maybe all you've done for the past 10 years is bringing up your kids and, and you think, man, you're cooking and cleaning and that's all you're doing versus if you're like out there preaching the word. Like if you in your mind think, the little acts of kindness that you're doing. Maybe you don't have kids. Maybe you're a widow. Maybe you're not even married. Maybe you're a single person who's lived your whole life and you've never done more in the church than teach a Sunday school class to second graders. Maybe you haven't even done that. Maybe you can't. Maybe you're handicapped and you can't even do that. But you honor God and you love him and you glorify him in your little world, whatever that looks like. God says, he doesn't overlook your work. He's not unjust. He sees our motives. He sees our heart, our desires, our worship. But he also says there's a part of this, the love that we have shown for his name in serving the saints. Why do we serve? Not for their sakes, for his sake. It doesn't mean we don't love them. We love God and love others. It's a two-way commandment, but, but we do it for the sake of Christ, and God sees that. And, 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 and he says, that we would have the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope to when, until the end, when eternity. God isn't lying by eternity. Then he says, so that you may not be sluggish. Don't be sluggish. Why? Because there's an end coming. But imitators of those who through faith and what? And patience. Patience for what? For eternity. And then you'll inherit the promise. God does not lie about eternity. So that means what that means practically to us, don't compare your results to others. God judges differently than we do. He's not looking, oh my goodness, she, she, taught a Bible study and so many people came to Christ. This is not about numbers. You see pastors like, we baptized 55 people this week. And so many people came, great, praise God, it's for his kingdom. But, but, but what about the person who loves God who doesn't, who hasn't been given the gift of preaching? Maybe your gift is compassion. Maybe all you do is write cards for someone. My mother corrects the prisoners crossroads the homework week after week. And she's 81 years old. I'm bragging on my mom. She gets the stuff. I wouldn't have time to do it. She sits and, and writes little notes with her shaking handwriting to the prisoners. Is that, is that equal to what Billy Graham did? Who decides? I don't know, Billy Graham, thousands of people, millions of people came to cry. Really? See, God judges differently. And so be patient. God doesn't lie about eternity. He gave us these words to encourage us the reality of eternity and that God is different than we are. Don't compare your results to others. God judges differently than we do. We're so human in our comparisons. Don't, and what that also means is don't give up too soon. Maybe you're serving the Lord and you're, you're pitching in and maybe you started a ministry and, and, and you're serving in your church and you've been burned by a number of reasons, right? I mean, it could be people who burned you. It could be the fact that no one thanks you, that's leaving you wounded. Maybe you expected results and no one's showing up. Maybe I've had people, I had one gal a couple of years ago told me she was starting a Bible study for singles. One person showed up. Don't give up too soon. God sees what you're doing. Say, so is it worth it? What was I reading? Oswald Chambers today, my almost for his highest. And he talks about the college. I guess he was part of a Christian college. And he says, if one person gives their life to Christ through his college, it's worth it. One person. And I thought, my goodness, how many people have not read my almost for his highest and, and loved the writings of Oswald Chambers? And yet today's, if you go and read today's my almost for his highest, Google it, put, put in November 3rd, my almost for his highest. And he talks about how if one person in his college dedicates their life to the Lord and service, it's worth it. 
Think about that, a different perspective. Don't give up too soon. And then, and what that also says to us about eternity is don't let go of hope. Don't stop hoping. Hope, hope, hope. Let hope be alive. Hope that is the other side of the coin of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. We're going to get to that in Hebrews 11. Why can we hope? Because God's promises will never fail us. That brings me to the last point here, which is this. God does not lie about his promises. He's always worth the wait. Initially, I wrote, it's always worth the wait, but I changed it. He's always worth the wait. God does not lie about his promises. He's always worth the wait. Let me read you the last few verses because they're so encouraging. And honestly, they, they teach themselves. I don't have to say anything. It says, verse 13, for when God made a promise, remember, he does not lie. That's the premise of what we're looking at today. We can be confident. We can be unshaken. Why? Because our God does not lie. For when God made a promise to Abraham, now we're going back all the way to Genesis chapter 12. Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, you ever watch some of these movies with the tough guys. I swear by my mother, they'll say. Like their mother's the most, you know, don't talk about my mother. Like this whole, you know, Italian mobster thing. There's, why do we use that? Why do people use that? Because it's like no one higher than their mother in their minds, right? People swear by all sorts of things. The highest person, God couldn't swear by anybody higher but, but himself because he's God. And he says, uh, made a promise to Abraham since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, a covenant, a promise, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. There's a comparison here of in the Old Testament, people would go to a city of refuge when they were in trouble, when they were sinning. When, and in the comparison, of course, Jesus is our place of refuge. And, and he says in verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I, I read a quick um, a commentary on a verse right before I started Bible study a couple hours ago. And it, it was a reminder that an anchor is needed not when the waters are calm, but when they're shaken, when you're when, when there's turbulence is when you need an anchor. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, we're going to come back to this idea of the great high priest, Melchizedek. It says where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And, and let, me, let me sort of comment. Remember, we talked about Jesus being a forerunner when we talked about him being the, the captain of our salvation, who has made perfect through suffering the concept of captain of our salvation was that he went before us. Where did he go before us? Well, he, it was the veil that was broken through his death at the cross. You, when the sun disappeared and the veil was torn and we were given access to God the Father through who? Through Jesus Christ. This is our hope in life and in death. We have an anchor, a hope. Why? Well, because God does not lie about his promises. He's always worth the wait. God's promises are tested in the waiting and in the storm. That's where we need an anchor. God's faithfulness is tasted in the waiting. This is what Abraham did for 25 years. He waited for God to fulfill his, his, his promise, but, but it wasn't just that promise. That was just waiting for Isaac, but, but it took thousands of years later for Abraham to see the full fruition of the promise, which was in Christ Jesus. That was the promise of the son who would save us. 
God's glory is magnified in the waiting. How? Through our faith. God's goodness is needed in the waiting and God's hope is certain in the waiting. Perseverance marks the true saints. Perseverance marks the true saints. How do you persevere? Well, when you rest in the promises of a God who does not lie. And so tonight, do you believe God? Are you still dull of hearing or are the things that you're hearing changing you? God does not lie about his word. Are you spending time in it? If you are, you can see its effect on your life. God does not lie about sin. Its consequences are serious. Are you repenting of it? Are you in line, submitting yourself, yielding to who God says he is? Are you yielding to the goodness of God? Not as you determine it is, but as it really is in Christ Jesus. God does not lie about eternity. Every little thing we do matters. Are you doing it for the glory of God? Are you doing it uncaring of the results here on earth, what other people think of you? Are you living for the glory of God? And God does not lie about his promises. He is always worth the wait. He's made a way for us. He's the forerunner before us. Next week, we're going to get back together and dig back deep into this concept of Jesus as high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We're going to take it deeper. We're going to look at the sacrifices of the Old Testament and, and see how Christ is better. And I can't wait to be back with you next week. So for today, we're going to end this study resting in the knowledge that we have a God who never lies. We can take his promises to the bank, so to speak. Are you willing to patiently wait on this God? He is faithful and he's always worth the wait. Well, that's the end of our time together. And I'm so glad you checked in. I hope that you found this study useful. Listen, I'd love for you to come back next week. We drop new episodes every week and we're going to continue with the Hebrew study. Hey, why don't you use the time during the week to read through what we just uh, studied? Why don't you go back and read from Hebrews and on and on and uh, let the word of God dwell in you richly. Uh, let us uh, lean into what God has uh, is doing in our lives. And uh, before I leave you, let me remind you that you can check out drlinabook.com and find out all about my new book or just go to Amazon and put in my name or the title of the new book. Don't tell anyone you're reading this. I think you're going to love this book. Hey, if you've read it, why don't you go to Amazon and leave a review. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, do so. Uh, it will be an easy way to be reminded every week that there's a new episode. Hey, again, thanks for being here. We're praying for you. If you want to leave me a message, do it at lena at livingwithpower.org. And uh, with that in mind, enjoy the rest of your day. Take care and know that God loves you.